Hey, my guest today, Elise Spiegel, was never supposed to be in radio or podcasting for that matter. Until graduating from college and heading to Chicago, she stumbled upon a random ad, old school ad in the paper, to intern with this then little known radio guy named Ira Glass. And after relentlessly pursuing him for the job, and we will hear how relentless that was in the conversation, he eventually kind of gave in and the rest is history. A year later, she became one of the founding producers of This American Life as they launched, where she worked with Ira and a team that would change the face of public radio, of storytelling, journalism, and eventually podcasting as well, leaving to work on other shows and build more of a life outside radio. She eventually, after a number of years, felt called back into the space, becoming the co-creator of Invisibilia, which is one of the top podcasts in the world where they explore the invisible forces that shape who we are and what we do. We dive into all of this and so much more in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So, what's kind of funny is that I usually try and do a fair bit of background on my guests. And when I was looking, you're, you have had this incredible, very public storied career in radio and now mm -hmm. podcasting going on for a long time now. And when I was looking to explore background for you, there are like three stories and then nothing. Huh. And I was like, huh, so witness protection, CIA. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you've outed me. No, um, that's interesting. So what are the three stories? It's all career-oriented. It's true, I, uh, yeah. And it seems like, you know, it was interesting because it's like when when there's, when the, the internet seems to be that scrubbed of personal details, it feels intentional in a certain way. It's interesting. I, it, it isn't scrubbed. It, I don't think it ever existed. Mm. So, I mean, the truth is I am a journalist because I am very, very interested in the world. And I have done only a very small handful of stories which say anything about my own experience. 
you know, I did the story about my grandfather creating, uh, I mean, like changing the definition, removing homosexuality from the diagnostic and statistical manual, and also being a closeted gay man. And then I've just done a handful of others, mostly because, not because I'm necessarily hiding anything, but mostly because, you know, I think journalists, they're, they're either interested in using the world to explore themselves, or they're interested in just moving away from where <laughs> where they came from and exploring the world and I'm kind of in the in the last camp. I am really really interested in the world. And there is a personal story behind that, which is that um I grew up I had this very eccentric childhood where I was like basically raised to be a world famous solo violinist. So what that means is that I just spent an enormous amount of time alone in a practice room for four to six hours a day, starting when I was like nine or 10. And so I really spent a lot of time alone. And I think I spent a lot of time, you know, yearning to find out what was on the other side of the practice room door. And that as soon as I was able to kind of make my way out of the 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 life that I was living, which happened around eighteen nineteen it was it was just this pent up need really to to understand the world um and and to understand what you know, what the other options were other than this very kind of restricted, rigorous uh, life that I had lived, you know, until I was 19 years old, basically. Yeah. Was life up until that point when you're practicing for six hours a day and sort of being tracked to be, you know, world class in something? I'm always curious whether that's something that is internally motivated or externally sort of imposed that was externally imposed so the story behind that is my my uh mother's family more or less you know they were living in um belgium during the second world war or right before the second world war and kind of got out and then but my one of my mother's cousins actually survived auschwitz by playing piano and she took that very literally. Like, there, I feel like there are many lessons that you could draw from that. Like, it's useful to have some kind of skill that differentiates you. But like, really, she kind of she wanted her daughter to survive, and so she the way the the way that that worked itself out for in her mind was my daughter needs to be able to play the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto in A minor absolutely perfectly and then whatever comes she will survive and and you know i mean <laughs> so that's how i ended up in such a kind of rigorous uh, such a kind of rigorous uh discipline so early because yeah. my mother really wanted wanted me to to be able to survive and that was how she emotionally she saw it I mean, it's so interesting on a couple of levels. One, I think the average parent, when a kid says, I want to be in some way, shape or form, like make my work, work you know, in the performing arts, a lot of parents are freaked out by that because they think it's 
the opposite of secure in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it was the opposite lens with you. Yeah. Yeah. It was my cousin survived. You can survive. Just sit there in this room. And I have a great, you know, I love my mother. My mother is an extraordinary woman in a million different ways. And I don't have any kind of bitterness. And, you know, I, I talk to her a couple times a week. But it was a very eccentric. It was not a normal American childhood. And, you know, and it, it, it in, in, in <laughs> you know, in many ways. And that is it's kind of the engine that propels this curiosity about the world, because I was so removed from the world for so long and also questioned whether or not I would ever get access to the world, really, in in the way that that most people do. And that you can see that in a million ways in my in my life, just this this. It's like somebody who like grew up really, really unattractive and then they grow up and they be and they become incredibly beautiful, but they, their self concept never fully adjusts. I think there's like an element of that with me where you know, I just have this sense that I will never actually know. And and so I am seeking always to know as much as I possibly can. And that's why. So so in answer to your original question, which was, you know, is <laughs> are you in the witness protection program? The answer is no. I am just I just spent the first 20 years of my life locked in a practice room and and as soon as I got out, I just was insanely hungry to know what what other people's experience was. Yeah. What happens at 18 or 19 that opens the door for you? Um, I, I finally put my foot down. I mean, I had one, like, and I just said, I am quitting this thing. And that was a huge, like... That was a, that was its own kind of war, like own issue, like getting itself like that, that finding a way when everything in your life is kind of structured in a certain way to create a certain, you know, to be to have you become a certain thing um, to step away from that feels very difficult uh, because that's the only way that I had ever understood myself. And so, right. I mean, but basically I just said, I, this is not what I want to do. And, you know, my mother said, give me one more year. And so that I did one more year. Then I got into Oberlin College <laughs> because that's a place that you can get into if you play violin. And then I, within a week, dropped any kind of musical anything mm. and have never looked back. It's so fascinating, too, because, I mean, Oberlin is legendary for its music programs. Mm -hmm. So it's like the thing that got you in there that had largely defined your identity up until that moment, the moment you arrive, effectively, you're like, nah, no longer. Um, oh, yes. Intentionally. I, right. I, like, applied. I was like, this will get me in the door. Because actually, like, I didn't even go to school every day of the week. Like, you know, I went to, I, like, had lessons on Wednesday afternoons when I was in the conservatory orchestra and like I would sometimes go to New York for lessons on Friday. So like I my grades and all of that stuff was not, you know, it wasn't stellar, but I played violin 
And so, yeah. So I just knew I could get in and then and then I will never touch this thing again. Not never touch this thing again. Actually, my mother and I play together. But um, but I knew that was just my way out. And but then you also you find yourself in this place where a lot of people go there to continue this and like the yeah. culture is built around it. And you're like, it's, for you, it's almost not it's not just saying I'm done with this, at least in, in the way that it was. But is did you feel that like you were kind of opting out of the culture there? At no, the same because time or not? because because Oberlin is actually a fairly diverse place. There okay. is a conservatory and then there is also a legit normal college. And so I just ducked out of the conservatory part and I and I embraced everything that was not in the conservatory. Yeah. So then it's sort of like, okay, so now I have some time to figure out um who am I? Yeah. <laughs> um, you were know, funny. We had a Last year, I guess it was Liz Fair in the studio who was at Oberlin. I think she left right before you got there, right? Oh, no, I I actually recently I was interviewing her for something. Yes, we are both Oberlin kids and we know some of the same people, actually. Yeah, Um, but but she showed up there and she wanted to be a visual artist. She had no interest in music. Yeah, it just completely flips for her the, the opposite direction. Yeah, well, there's there were a lot of bands at Oberlin, and actually, I was in a rock band at Oberlin, and I was like, "What what can you do with eight years of music theory that will also coincidentally upset your mother?" It was like a total twofer, <laughs> double so, win. <laughs> yes, I know. I was like incredibly efficient, and so uh, yeah, I uh, I was in a I was in first Barbie Skank and then Succubus. I have a record. <laughs> I have we the succubus has a has a record actually somewhere I don't know where it is but um, yeah the me playing uh, electric guitar I picked up tel, uh, a Telecaster that's amazing so when you you move through your time in Oberlin mm-hmm. what do you what did you actually end up studying then I studied political science got it I was I thought that I I I was I was I I have always wanted to make the world a better place and i thought that that would be one way of doing it cool Um, so when you get out then you you it sounds like pretty shortly after graduation you you land in chicago yeah Um, i i had one year in san francisco at a think tank which didn't work out very well and then i and then i moved to chicago to to be with my boyfriend and i um picked up the one day and I was I had no idea what to do with my life at that point and um one day I picked up a the the Chicago Tribune and I was in frustration this was during the Chicago heat wave I threw it on my lap and there was a teeny tiny little you know uh, uh like little note in the paper a sidebar that said Ira Glass starting a new radio program your Radio Playhouse, that's the first name of This American Life. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. You did, yeah. And uh, do- documentaries about American life. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just wheedle my way in. So I know in a much more recent incarnation, you've, uh, you have you put out a manifesto on uh, radio, which I'm, I'm, I want to circle back to a little bit later. But one of the things that you shared in there was this experience that you had right at the beginning, where I guess as an intern, you were transposing or taking notes on an interview a story by a guy named kevin kelly oh um, yes tell me tell me more that about was this. critical um i mean i i just 
You know, I had been wondering what to do with my life. And actually, originally, it wasn't like I decided to be a journalist. I, I just, you know, it said documentaries about American life. And I was very interested in American life because I'd, again, been so separated, I felt, from it. And and I thought that going and working at a radio show would actually be a, a good way for me to be exposed to a lot of different people so that I could figure out what I wanted to do. And the very first show that This American Life ever did, when it was still your radio playhouse, was a story about firsts and or new beginnings, new beginnings. That's what it was. And uh, so they did the story of Kevin Kelly, who is the founder of Wired magazine and this this magazine that's very much associated with the future. And Ira was talking to him. It's an amazing story in and of itself about this experience where where he was in Israel and woke up one morning and, and it came to him on Easter morning that he was going to die in six months. And then he does this thing where he decides that he can't know for certain whether or not he's going to die, but he he is going to live as if he were going to die. And he gives away he gives away everything that he owns and he does all this stuff. And it was and then and then at the end, it turns out that he doesn't die and he starts crying. And I just remember I was this is one. Of, I think it I think it was the first interview, actually, that um Ira did for the show. It w- had never. It was a story that Kevin Kelly had never told, and I was not for some reason in the original interview. My job was to transcribe, and I just remember kind of sitting there listening to this interview, and and I was experiencing it as it was unfolding on tape, and I was like, "This is it." Like this, I wanted to like crawl into the tape and just stay there for the rest of my life. I just, you know, it was it was an answer for me. And and I was like, I'm not going to use this to figure out what I want to do. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And and it was it it was incredibly that was I will that's that was the that was like the demarcation for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated with the concept of sliding doors. Do you ever reflect on what would happen had you not, on that one given day, opened up the newspaper and seen that one ad? I think about that all the time. And in fact, <laughs> and in fact, you know, I, I have sought to answer that question in my professional life. I be, like I, for, I've like I kept pitching that it became the pattern problem, which is one of our shows that Invisibilia did. But essentially, I had a, this idea of like how small, how small a thing can redirect a life, right? Because there there are two concepts. It's really interesting. You know, there are two concepts that I think people have. And this actually goes back to violin. Um well, I won't I won't explain it that way, but but uh you know, it, it's like either you know a life comes from inside the person. You know, there is a person has a certain personality and a certain way of being. And this person would be a great dancer, singer, writer, no matter what they were destined for that. Or is it that like there are teeny tiny little accidents and those accidents make the difference between one life and another life? And I actually set out to answer that question for myself. And yeah, I think I would. I I think it's very. I, there there is no way that I was fated to be a journalist. There wasn't. I 
it is a strange thing that I'm in this profession in the first place. I mean, I had by according to me, I, I remember being in college and having to write an essay and it literally took me five hours to write three sentences. And I remember sitting there just being like, well, there's one thing that's off the list. Never going to be a writer. And I didn't do any journalism in college or any other thing like that. And so, um, you know, but but I, I and then now today, I'm essentially I write for a living. So, yeah, it was not predestined. It was a series of small, you know, it, it just so happened. I just so happened to pick up that newspaper. I just so happened to throw it on my lap. And that's the difference. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass 
savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. Now I'm curious, when you look at those two different things, is that a true dichotomy or can it, can it be more of a yes and? I think it can be more of a yes and. Like, I mean, it depends. You can tell the story in a variety of ways, right? So I picked up that, like, like I can tell you, do you know the story about, like, how I got into This American Life? Have you heard that story? No, I don't think I know that one. Okay. So I picked up that. Here's, here is here is a true story. And this shows you. It's like, yes, there is chance, essentially. Um, but then there is also personality. And both those things in combination determine outcomes. So I picked up this uh, I picked up this newspaper, I threw it on my lap, Ira Glass during your radio playhouse, I went, I got a scissors, I cut out this teeny tiny little square of writing. And every day I like sat with that, you know, square of paper in between my two thumbs and I looked at it and I said, this is the difference between today and tomorrow. I am going to pull this square into a window and I'm going to go through that window and that's going to and I am going to change my own life. And so I started calling Ira and I called him, you know, twice a week, just being like, hey, Ira, hi, hi, I'm Elise. I'm Elise. Hello. Hi. Guess what? My name's Elise. And also, I would like to work. I'd like to work on the show, please, please. And um, he actually had me in for like two um two interviews and you know he was like I just you know I mean he was like I don't know you know I haven't started the show yet I don't know what we need you don't have any experience and I was like okay um and then I would call him the next week and I'd be like hi Ira I'm Elise how are you doing and anyway so finally I like it was like September that was all summer and then September and you know, I had actually somebody at another place had offered me a job because I was also kind of talking to other public radio things. And I was and I called him up and I was like, Ira, you know, I'm so wanted. And, you know, so now's your only chance. And can you are you going to give me this internship, unpaid internship or not? And he said, no, I'm not giving you the internship. And I was like, okay, I respect that. Thank you very much. And I hung up the phone. And then I like sat there for like five minutes. I was in my house in Baltimore, actually, because it was September 2nd, which is my father's birthday. And, um, and I just sat there and I was like, there's no fucking way. There's just no fucking way. There's not a way that this is how this ends. So, So I picked up the phone and I was like, Ira, I'm coming in. I'm coming in for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, you're allowed to send me away, but I'm coming in and I will see you in October. And like at that point, Ira had like tried to say no to me in so many different ways. Some of them nice, some of them not so nice. Some And he was just like, oh, okay, forget it. Like, 
whatever. I I I give in, and that's how I got my job. So that's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> that's like so that shows you. I mean, like that's like a combination of like yes, there is luck, um, but also there is determination and that's something for example that Ira always said to me when we were starting out it's like we just work enough until we get lucky you know that you just put yourself in the way of luck by through through not being turned aside yeah I mean what jumps out of me there also is that I I'm curious how much of you know, so tenacity is one word um, another word which is sort of like much more popular these days would be grit Mm-hmm. which is legendary for having been developed with people who are pursuing elite level performance in athletics and music. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder how much of like your, your unwillingness to accept Ira's rejection comes from the fact that you had trained for, you know, the, the first X number of years fiercely Mm -hmm. to never give up and comp you know constantly um get better and and you had this sort of you had an extraordinary level of grit that made you say okay so once i find something i want i mean if you have that towards something that you kind of really want to stop doing as soon as you can then when you find something where you're like oh this i mean and you apply it to that it's like a whole different game yeah no i think i think the thing that i did get from violin is an ability to withstand like stamina withstand pain how much pain can you and that's that's particularly in kind of the beginning part of I think any professional life but certainly journalism I mean when you don't know what you're doing it's just like it like let's say you're trying to find you're trying to land a great interview. Well, one way of doing that is just being extremely smart and clever about how you structure interviews and how you get how you get how you, you know, render the tape. Another is just go out and talk to like 20 million people. One of those people is going to be like a really good talker. They're going to do all your work for you. So like so like, yes, I think um, you were talking about stamina. Yes, I, I feel like the thing that I learned from being a violinist is you know, I I know how to withstand discomfort. Uh, and I understand that there is a lot of discomfort involved in any kind of, not just excellence, but any kind of, um, any kind of work. Like there, there, you know, you have to be able to, there's a ton of rejection that you have to be able to endure. There's a ton of failure that you have to be able to endure. And, and that's always been kind of how I moved through things. And I, it was, I was well-trained in that, I think. Yeah. And, and also the idea that it's a volume game. Um, oh, volume game. Yeah. Right. And, like, and you see this in, uh, you know, like creative research also where people are like, you know, well, create 10 paintings, you know, like, and make them as meticulous as you possibly can. And over the same window, another group of people creates, you know, like just as many, like they're just, they're told to create as many paintings as you possibly can. Doesn't matter how good or bad they are. And then when sort of like an arbiter of judges who are experts in creativity, look at the, the, fi the final output, you know, sort of like the best of the best from both sides, mm -hmm. the volume game almost always wins. Oh, I, I like the volume game was my gospel when I was yeah. younger. 
now that I have a lot more information about what I'm doing, volume is not, I, I don't need to use the volume strategy as right. much because I can dance my way around out of a lot of problems without volume. That's how yeah. I feel now. So it's sort of like once you hit a certain level, I mean, because the volume game builds a certain amount of craft. And then once you have that baseline level of craft, it allows you to function differently, I think. Yes, that is exactly, that is exactly, you. that is exactly my <laughs> philosophy. Like I just did a ton of volume and it's all about numbers. And this is what I tell like the producers that I'm training on Invisibilia. It's like, in the beginning, it's just about volume, and then you encounter a problem, you solve it, you encounter a problem, and then you have a menu of like possible techniques for solving problems. Because every, for example, every story is broken in a different, like none of them come with full, like with with all of the elements that you need in order to create a great story none of them zero percent well not zero percent i would say like maybe two percent come where it's like you know top and tail it as as they say you know you cut off the top you cut off the hellos you cut off the, bo the bottoms and like there is a beautiful thing but um typically it's uh it's the, it's just you know, you just have to, you have to invent your way around all. And that's true in life too. You know, you're just inventing, you're inventing your way out of the problems. It's not like you're not going to, yeah, that's, that's, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so your two-week internship, um, <laughs> which yeah. turned into apparently, yeah, I'm curious, so many questions I want to ask you. How far in, so the, the Kevin Kelly thing, Mm -hmm. Did that happen almost immediately? Was that like one of the really, really early things or or did that happen later down the road? And also, maybe I should ask him before that, you know, like, okay, so you show up on October X, whatever the date mm -hmm. was and be like, Ira, I'm here. Let's mm -hmm. do this. Um, mm -hmm. How long into that until you or him or both of you realize, oh, this needs to keep happening? <laughs> okay, so I showed up and it was just me and Ira and then somebody who was part-time so the it, like this uh, Dolores Wilbur she was she was you know just a consultant she I mean she was a con contributing editor and Paul Tuff and Jack Hitt um, were contributing editors but in the very beginning it was just me and Ira and the Kevin Kelly thing I mean first I, I this is like a sign of the the apocalypse I like I was tasked with setting up like the computers which anybody who knows me now would find that hilarious. Anyway, um, yeah, and so, I mean, basically what happened was we just didn't have any conversation, like, for a long time about, about, like, my status. Like, it wasn't like I was, like, are you, like, after the two weeks, I was like, are you giving me a job? I just, we just, I just kept going, and I, we just didn't have any conversation. I wasn't, he wasn't paying me. So, yeah, so I, <laughs> we just kept going, and then about six months in, I think, I uh, like I, I finally got he was just like, I'll pay you part time, which was like, I'll pay you two dollars for a year's worth of work. And and then after a year, I got full time uh, and I got actually hired properly. So that's so, so he just never sent me away. And and like so whenever I, I would say like, you know, like for for the my the whole length of my time there, whenever he would get mad at me, <laughs> I was like 
I was sad, but on on other like my inside voice was saying it was like, I mean, what are you gonna do? You didn't hire me. You're gonna like you're gonna fire me. You didn't even hire me. Like what 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 power do you have here? You have no power. Like forget it. Like you know. Um. So that so that's the way. Yeah. We just didn't talk about it, and I just kept going. That's amazing. So so then you kind of go official. I guess right around the time when. It actually becomes they they make the changeover. It becomes this American life, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you by that time also because it's been you and him and maybe one other person. It was Nancy Updike, me, Peter Clowney, okay, and him, I think. And so you've got a year of this under your belt. So mm-hmm. when it flips over to this American life, you step into more of like a producing role pretty quickly. It sounds like yeah, no, I was a producer. I mean, I was doing all the tasks of a producer. Right. I just wasn't getting paid, or um, and I didn't have the title. So, I mean, I was producing, you know, that very first show I was transcribing. I, was, I wasn't I was cutting tape maybe at that point, but fairly quickly. I mean, you're desperate, right? Like, I mean, like, Ira, like, you have a weekly show. It is a journalism show and you have four people. So obviously whoever is there is going to be put to work. And Ira, I have to say, is like the best. He is he is the best teacher like he's just like the best at, at that at that point in particular I think he was he had so much riding on this show being a success and he was so particular about it and he had such a well-developed philosophy of what your options were and what he was trying to do and and all of the possible choices that you can make at every point of the process that um, that it was just it was like he he really I think he could have he, he could teach like a goldfish how to do excellent radio. I mean, it's that clear. And it so it, it was just an incredible privilege for me, I think. Yeah. And this was a really interesting time, too, because right, like now when we reflect on Ira Glass on This American Life, you know, it is this juggernaut in the space of audio, like, and, and it feels like it's been that way for a really long time. And Ira's name is well known in all Mm -hmm. circles now. But what he was doing when he started with you, like when This American Life like launches, even though we hear, now you listen to radio and you listen to podcasts, and we hear the influence of, of, you know, like what you guys did in the very, very early days. Mm-hmm. all over the place. Mm-hmm. But when when that first happens, it was almost heresy to a certain extent. When you looked oh, at yes. what was happening in the world of public radio before then, this was not how you did things. Even though now we're like, well, of course that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were there were several so <laughs> You know, so yes, I and I can, and he had articulated very, very clearly for himself and also for us, like the the changes that he was making in the form and why he was making those changes. So, for example, and this might be very kind of inside baseball for for your audience. I don't know, but for example, like one of the big changes that This American Life made in the kind of in in the approach to radio was okay. The NPR voice is a very kind of authoritative voice, and we are going to take a, a a much less authoritative voice. We are going to be our human selves as reporters in our writing, 
in our delivery style. And so we are going to and we are going to, you know, and, and that was one big ideological really change that that he kind of pushed forward. And then also, you know, we're going to use tape in a different way. Right. So so. So a typical NPR story at the time, you talk to the tape, you go, you, you know, you have your tracks, then you go talk to the in a very formal way to the tape. And then you come out and you have axe tracks, axe tracks. He wanted to kind of change that. And then he also wanted to change the kind of underlying, the typical underlying structure. And he wanted to borrow more from, um, you know, film and other forms of, of storytelling so that you're creating a much more typical narrative arc. So those were all things, for example, that that were explicitly discussed about how th- what was going on at this American, well, how this American life was going going to make different choices than it had been made before, and those choices were in part about taste, and they were in part about kind of life philosophy. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I mean, it sounds like before that it was a lot of, well, here's the announcer, here's the story. Here's yeah. the announcer, here's the story. Yeah. And then everything gets conflated and meshed and becomes this sort of seamless fabric um, mm-hmm. when you start doing it where, you know, it's no longer the announcer, it's the narrator. Mm-hmm. And the narrator is no longer necessarily outside of the story. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're, some, exactly. you're sort of like weaving in and out of it. And, you know, there's, you know, the news had always had this sense of, well, we are objective. And of course, like these days, we know that's a joke. 
but there was always this stance like you know like we're just simply you know like in an unbiased way introducing the facts and here are the facts here's the tape mm -hmm. and and you guys were like no <laughs> yeah well we have yes. a point of view <laughs> yes mostly ira let's let's like give credit where credit was due because i was 23 but you know yeah mostly ira was just like that is you know stuff and nonsense and we're taking a different approach and we're going to be very aggressive about being human and allowing our human selves are flawed and curious and funny and sad human selves to appear in these stories. And actually, you know, one of the things he always said at the time was, we're going to apply, you know, some of these these techniques, more traditional techniques to small stories. Because when, when, when This American Life first started out, one, another one of the innovations was we're not going to take on the big issues of the day. We're going to take on um, teeny tiny life things and apply journalistic skills to them. That it has evolved out of that. I mean, it, it, it is now uses, using those skills to address this, the, the stories of the day. But that was also, yeah, we're, we're looking at personal narratives, but we're putting them through some of these processes. Yeah, I, I think one of the other huge things, right, and you see this so much in the work that you've done independently now over the years, is that the nature of the tape focused from the facts and just the facts. It focused from the external circumstances to the internal life. Exactly, yeah. That was yeah. a huge shift. That's, yeah, I hadn't really, I hadn't, you know what, I hadn't really ever kind of thought about that as one of the as one of the kind of big changes, actually. But now that you say that, that that's true. I mean, yeah, we, 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 we are looking. I mean, certainly there was journalism before that. I mean, you have to look at like Joe Richman and Dave Isay and like there was a, there was a, and the Kitchen Sisters. And, you know, there, there was a, there was a beautiful tradition that I, that I was familiar with even before going to, this American life of of people really kind of looking at the kind of psychological worlds of of everyday people, but sure, yes, that's also true. Uh, like having having a lot of the focus be on, and this is certainly central to my work at Invisibilia. You know what is what are the kind of psychological like structures and, and, and concepts that are shaping the experience of a person. And also, right, so that's an outgrowth of, you, you can trace the, the red thread back to, okay, so violence over what is this world that exists outside yeah. of that? Like, and what's happening? Yeah, like, and who the are most, the players? What are they thinking? What's shaping them? And yeah. like, how does that, you know, how do I, how do I figure that out in the context of my life too? Yeah. Like in the most basic way, like what like what are your expectations? What is your experience of the world? Because mine was so strangely specific and rigid. And so I just wanted to know, like, what is it li like literally for the first like four years after I got out of it? I was like, what do people do when they wake up in the morning? Like that was a very basic question that I had that it took me years to answer it's like if you're not practicing violin six hours a day like literally 
what happens? Like, how does it go when you're not doing that in addition to like all of like the schoolwork and everything else? Like what? So you wake up and then what happens? Yeah, that was a very that like even really basic stuff like that was so I was so interested. It's amazing how you can find a story also. I think people are we're always looking for like the big grand things. You know, like those are the big like that's where the story lies and the big moments of change and you know like there's always these big let's focus there and tell the big story. It it sounds like so much of what you've come to see and be curious about is like you know, where where are the stories and what are the stories um in the tiny moments that populate every person's day. Yeah. I mean, yes, but I'm also I mean like I am interested in everything. Yeah. Like, except for classical music, I'm interested in <laughs> literally every single thing. Okay, so have um, you, And I'm have... also very interested in systems and conceptual systems. Mm. And and that that's always been, I mean, like if you look at Invisibilia and the kind of founding philosophy of Invisibilia, that is that is the work that we are trying to do. We're trying to make more explicit, implicit conceptual systems so that people can be free, would be one way of saying it, but so that people ha have choices. That's what invisibilia is. So I'm not just interested in the kind of minutiae of people's lives. I'm also interested in the kind of cultural conceptual structures that shape those experiences and define those experiences in a lot of ways. Yeah, it sounds like not just describing them, but also what their origin stories are and whether they're yeah. valid or not, or, yeah. or constructive or destructive. Yeah, 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 definitely. So you spent a chunk of time um, with Ira and the crew of This American Life. At a certain point, you split off and you end up on NPR's science desk. Mm -hmm. I guess for over 10 years, and I guess you're still kind of like occasionally weave in and out of doing stuff with them. I mean, typically not now. You know, Invisibilia started... 2015? 2015. Right. We had been obviously working on it because we had a whole season at that point before that, but also as it like in the cracks because I was a science reporter and so was Lulu. Although Lulu was brought on to do Invisibilia with me and Ann Gudenkoff, who's like the like a very important part of the Invisibilia story and also my story just in general. But um, but wait, what was your question again? It was. It, it was. Um, I was asking about sort of like that intern. Yeah. So um, I. So I did. So I did the. I did the science desk. I mean, that was to be one hundred percent honest. I had moved to New York because I figured I needed to figure out how to write and and what would my what would my voice and interest be outside of this American life and also just because I'm one of these people who like. I really, 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 really want to have a lot to learn at every moment. And like, I want to be at the bottom of the hill and just have a very steep learning curve because that that's, I'm sure, part of violin things too. So I, I felt like I understand. I there I had reached a kind of plateau at this American life. And I was like, okay, so what do I need to do? I need to like figure out this is, it's going to be very unpleasant to learn how to like write in my own voice and my own interests. So might as well get that out of the way. So I moved to New York and I started you know, I was a contributing editor to This American Life, and I just got really, really depressed because I'm not some because I like other people. So I, I was sitting alone in a room by myself, and and so I just needed a way out of the depression, and so I I needed external structures, and that's why I went to NPR, and then I met 
Ann Gudenkoff, who was the editor of the Science Desk. And and then I like to be again, to be totally honest, I I got I for a while, I just got focused on my personal life and trying to understand again, like in the way that I typically do is like, how does one get married? And what are all of the ways that people conceptualize that? And how does one have children? And what are all the ways that one getting like talking to everything that wasn't nailed down and like reading every single book? And, you know, I mean, like, literally, you know, get into the back of a cab. So your wife, how did you guys meet? Like, look, just give me the whole, like, what is the, what does it look like? You know, everybody. And so that was 10 years. And then, and I, I got married, I had kids. And then when my youngest was, you know, like, I guess five, four or five, then all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay. I like, this is gonna, this is gonna work out great. And then I, then I was like, oh, I really want to, I have, you know, I had a little bit been on autopilot professionally is the truth as I kind of figured out these other things. And then I was like, I, I like, I, I really, really want to, and, and it wasn't totally I, I, like autopilot. I was working on the science desk. I, I covered human behavior. I was getting information. I was engaged in the world. I just not in the kind of insanely rigorous way that I had been engaged at This American Life, where literally, I think for four years, I did not have a thought that was not This American Life related. And and so then I was like, well, what I, what do I want to do? Or, or like, I want to go back to long form. And, and I wanted, I, I felt at the time that there was not, that my, my view of the world had, had was not adequately, was not adequately represented in terms of I have I'm very psychologically minded and you know it felt like at at the time you know that like like a lot of journalism felt dominated by the, the by the idea that you know people were rational and you know like I'm thinking of like the new republic like hyper intellectual like if we explain stuff to people that will make it seems really it 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 feels like oh all of these ideas are everybody knows them and they're very circulating but at the time like there there hadn't been kind of as much of a hard there's been I think a kind of hard shift into this way of thinking that what was didn't exist as much back then like 2012, when I kind of started thinking about this, about, you know, well, what would I want to do and how would I want to kind of create this thing? And so, you know, I wanted I wanted more like a very explicitly psychologically minded approach to long form journalism where you got to talk about the kind of underlying psychological and conceptual structures that were shaping the experience, and that's what Invisibilia is, to some, to, to a large. I mean, it it has evolved, and you know, it, it takes on a lot of different things. But that was the kind of core idea. Let's look at all of these invisible things. It's like this an amazing outgrowth of your continued ferocious curiosity about what makes people do what they do, and and how does the environment we exist in affect us? Yeah, and your creative Jones, like your desire to make something that goes out into the world. And and that was one of my curiosities also is, you know, is it seems like you are satisfying these 
multiple things. You know, on the one hand, it's just, I, I want to know the answer to that. Like personally, like just, mm -hmm. this is fascinating. I, I need to know, I need to know the answer of it. And then on the flip side is, and then in the context of invisibility, invisibilia, which, you know, like is your own thing now, goes out into the world, you're, there's a creative process that happens on the back end of it. So it's not, you know, it's the investigative side. And mm -hmm. then, you know, you flip over and you're like, and how do we tell this story publicly mm -hmm. so that people can step into it and understand understand how this actually functions in the world. And to a certain extent, because it's the theme of invisibilia, how this may be controlling them or mm -hmm. affecting them in a way that they are completely unaware, unaware of. of. You know, so it's like you get to satisfy these, the creative side of you, the artistic side of you, the expressive mm -hmm. side, and simultaneously just the fierce curiosity about the human condition. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, although I, th I, I, yes. And, but I, th I like the, the craft side is also part of the curious, like, yeah. like one of the things like we very explicitly do at Invisibilia, you know, we're always looking for new techniques. And actually the show has evolved in terms of its sound and, and, and in terms of, and in terms of a, a variety of like the kinds of things that it, it takes on. But yeah, I'm, I'm like, in addition to being a, you know, curious about the human condition. I'm also very curious about what are all of the possible techniques that you can, for, for storytelling, like what are all of the possible approaches? So another part of what like got me interested in invisibilia is I was very, very inspired by Radiolab, which has a, you know how in the beginning I kind of laid out here consciously, here's where Ira was, he, these are the conscious choices he made that separated. Jad had a, has like further, uh, like he had a, he evolved that even more. And I was really interested in learning those techniques, which is part of the reason that I reached out to Lulu in the first place, because I'm as interested in, in essentially like creating an encyclopedia of techniques for storytelling, I mean, and that continues as of this morning. I was, I, you know, that, you know, like Masterclass, do you know what Masterclass yeah, yeah. is? Ron Howard, hello. He has like a really good one, which is, if you want to hear somebody, if anybody listening to us is interested in storytelling and wants to hear somebody talk through all of the elements of it, he has, a his approach is very similar to my approach in terms of, being very explicit about the choices that you have and 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 using different techniques he he's he's very good at explaining that stuff so yeah so i i am interested in my, you know i have a a strong curiosity that drives me towards the world and then that curiosity is also about how do i innovate in the form, in, in in terms of storytelling both in terms of structure and other things do you think about the bigger context of the work that you're doing? So you create a piece, you know, uh, well, the, the very first episode on invisibility, like five mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. right? So the secret history of thoughts, when you, you create something where it's sort of like, it deconstructs, you know, and, and so this, for those who haven't listened, it tells the story of a, a, just a lovely guy who starts to have these crazy thoughts of killing people, starting with his wife. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then you sort of like go out and you describe these different waves of therapy and how it's dealt with it. And there's like, you know, this powerful resolution. 
when you're creating what you create, you're satisfying your own curiosity. You are deeply into the creative act in a collaborative way with your team. But what you're creating is also going out into the world and you are describing these influences on humanity that millions of people also will experience. Do you have in your mind when you're creating these things or when you're choosing even, you know, when you're in a pitch meeting, you're like, what do we say yes to? What do we say no to? Do you, do you think about or weigh the potential societal impact? Like, will this shape culture in a way? Will this move people in a way? Will this, this open eyes or hearts or minds? Or on the flip side, is there, is, there, is there harm that might come out of something? I consider all of those things. In part, like particularly the harm issue, just because I have seen how journalism about human behavior, like credulous journalism about human behavior can have very, very negative impacts. And that was one of the kind of rationales for me going into the into the, the this beat in particular. Uh, I was alive during the 80s in Baltimore during the the recovered memory movement. I don't know if you know about that. Do you know about the recovered mm -hmm. memory movement? Oh, it's like it was, you know, and this was. So the recovered memory movement was the was there was this idea in journalism. I mean, in psychotherapy that people could have memories and then they repressed the memories and the therapist could unlock memories of yeah. incest and, you know, child abuse. And and that um, those ideas actually made their way into my life in Baltimore in the 1980s. And I had family members and friends who recovered memories and and, uh, you know, and subsequently had like had great strife with their family of origin and and so you can see i mean you can really see that ideas have consequences this is also true of the 81 words my grandfather removing homosexuality from the diagnostic and statistical manual that is a that was a scientific idea you know homosexuality is pathological that had a huge had huge impact on a huge number of people but is just i mean like the whole the one of the premises actually of this of um invisibilia is you know a lot of the things that are masquerading as quote unquote science are in fact are just social values or choices like homosexuality is abnormal that are that have positioned themselves under the banner of science and so people defer to it and so i very strongly felt like yeah you really need to like look at where these ideas come from and and interrogate them really really strongly and so a lot of invisibilia is like that is like that first episode where it's simply a kind of intellectual history. So like there was this idea about thoughts, which was, you know, you really need to take them seriously. And then there was this idea you'd need to take some seriously. And then so that you're making clear, look, these are ideologies. They're not realities. You've been told that they're realities, but they're not realities. Um, and, and just by showing the kind of evolution of an idea that becomes very, I think, viscerally clear to the to the listener. And yeah, so when I am, when we were looking at pictures, absolutely, like I, the the question, like, what are the stakes, you know, basic 
question, like, what are the stakes? Is this important for people to understand and, and look at? And, and, and can there be harm in me focusing on this, even if it's an incredibly compelling story? And yeah, I definitely think about that. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that it's, it's not always a bright line also. Sometimes it's, you know, like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have to make the call here. I would imagine also that what you say yes to when you start a project, that it's got to change so much through the process. Oh, it does, um, absolutely. So it's, you know, like, I, I would imagine so many of them just are completely different by the time they actually. Oh, completely. Like, yeah. totally. Yeah, they they start off in one place and then they just become like like the uh like this season. Oh, there there are just so many. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I would say like 20% of the time you walk into a story and like you have an idea about it and it roughly conforms. You know, 20% of the time you walk into a story and you have an idea about it and it is like literally the opposite of whatever you thought so much that there is a point in the story where you're like is this even a story? I'm like, that has happened. Like, like that. I did a story in the first season about this woman who has mirror touch synesthesia. So, yeah. like, if she sees something happen, she actually feels it on her body because her 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 visual system and her system of touch is crossed. And I went into that story. I was one hundred percent convinced that it was like this is gonna be hilarious. And because of my understanding of empathy, I was like, well, this is obviously this story is gonna go this way. And like it's gonna be you know, I just had and then literally at the end of the first day I was out there with Lulu and at the end of the first day we went to an olive garden and sat there and we were like is there even a story here? <laughs> like, because it was so different from what we thought. And then eventually, and so we, next day we went back and we were like, we got what we could. And it wasn't until weeks later that we were like, okay, we can tell some kind of story about this. But it, yeah, you always, they, they start in one place and then they become something completely different. But that's good because that means you're learning. And and I guess certain point I'm also so I'm thinking about actually, um, we're speaking shortly after your most recent season has dropped. And mm -hmm. the last episode of that, I think it was called The Last Sounds, right? Um, yeah, Abby Wendell. Guy Bernie Krause, was this really interesting, like fascinating exploration of our awareness of the sound around us and how how we, you know, it's like anything that's observed, you know, like is, is changed by the fact that it's mm -hmm. being observed. Mm -hmm. Kind of like applies that to sound, like how the fact that we exist as humans in this space change it and also you know our ability to distinguish between noise and sound and yeah. it was a really powerful story and then it drops and it drops at a time where i'm in new york city you're in dc mm -hmm. the soundscape like what we hear on any given day is profoundly different than yeah. it was a month ago, let alone, I'm sure when when your team started working on this, mm -hmm. or maybe even finished what was what you thought was mm -hmm. the final edit, and that leads to kind of a postscript in that episode, right. which says, "Okay, so we need to address what people are feeling right now." Yeah, yeah, I, we did. We did that story. Abby Wendell did that story. She did a beautiful job. Abby Wendell is an amazing. She's one of the producers of the show, and she just has. <sighs> such a gift in terms of um, being able to make beautiful 
music, essentially, with sound. And so she did this story, which is about how disruptive, like how disruptive human beings are to the kind of the natural world and how the very existence of their sound is changing the natural world and disrupting the natural world and making it harder for the natural world to exist in the way that it was, you know, evolved to exist. And then, you know, all of a sudden we are surrounded by, uh, like, humans' noise is, is muffled um, in a way that it hasn't been for a long time. And now you see it emerging a lot of these stories, right, about, well, what is, like, the, the way that, the ways that nature is, is, is behaving differently in the absence of the, the screaming noise that we bring to the world of a day. And... Um, yeah, I mean, we just felt like, look, we can't put this out without acknowledging where we are, which is at this moment where there's it's a much quieter world all of a sudden. And there's a lot of sadness in that quiet. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity in that quiet. Like, um, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to to build a better world a more sustainable world. Mm. Feels like a good place for us to start to come full circle also. So, <laughs> yeah. In this context, in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer out the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? I guess like, uh, uh, like to live a life of meaning where you're trying. That, that you know, it doesn't, you're trying to connect. You're trying to connect with the people around you and see them as people. You're trying to connect with the world around you and engage what it what it is and and to be yeah and, and that's and, and to do what you can. I mean you, you know you might fail to make the world a better place and probably you will if you look at it in kind of any broader way but i think the very act of putting your shoulder to the wheel is is a beautiful act and ultimately all you can do and that is uh, you know i don't really expect to make a huge difference but i but i am going to do my part to try you know that's mm. how I see it. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.